Uh, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 tonight, so if you guys want to turn there. And we won't be reading all of chapter 9, just through verse 19. And I will be reading uh, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azarias, by descent to Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which was set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. Because we have sinned against him, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, and yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he does, or sorry, in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who has made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all those who are around us. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. In Daniel chapter 9, at least through this first section, uh, it 
kind of breaks the pattern for what we've been doing in the last couple of chapters of Daniel. Um, I think it's a welcome break because chapter 7 and chapter 8 have been confusing and pictorial and there's been a lot of stuff going on. But Daniel 9 is really straightforward, which is kind of a breath of fresh air if you're reading through the book of Daniel. Um, it's one of the longest recorded prayers that we have in all of scripture. And it's one of those prayers that you can read and meditate on and, and just lose yourself in if you really wanted to. Uh, we don't have time to lose ourselves in it, but I would encourage you, if you're interested in that kind of thing, this is a great text to uh, read and learn prayer from. So, Just like the Lord's Prayer is a great text to read and learn prayer from, this text is a great text to read and to learn how to pray. Uh, the title that we're going to be working through tonight um, is A God Who Hears. And the angle we've been taking through Daniel, remember, is that it's written to exiles uh, for their encouragement, for their edification, for their hope, for their endurance. Uh, and wouldn't it be nice for an exile to know that they have a God who listens to them, who hears them, and who, uh, well, he's up there and he's paying attention. And that's what you get in this prayer. It's not just a God who comes down from heaven and tells the people what it is. Uh, it's also a God who listens to his people. That's something unique about the Jewish God. What you see, uh, remember, early on in the book of Daniel, there's this kind of worldview battle between the, the Babylonian uh, wise men, the magicians, the Chaldeans, where they tell Nebuchadnezzar, we can't discern dreams because the gods don't communicate to us, we don't communicate to them. That's a realm kind of set apart from us. And if, you were, uh, if you're uh, an American deist, that's the same kind of belief you have about God. God's out there, he started the world, he's made a moral system within the world, but he's not involved in the world, he doesn't listen to his people anymore, he's kind of left his creation and spun it out to go. But the God of the Bible is one who not only created a people, adopted a people unto himself, the God of the Bible is also one who remains involved in his people. And that's something that not just an exile needs to know. If you're, uh, if you're married and you've made a covenant with your spouse, it's, good thing, it's a good thing to know that God doesn't just promise his blessing on that relationship at the beginning, but he actually strives with it the whole time. It's, it's an active engagement with his people. If you're a believer, this is a good thing to know because he, well, God doesn't just save you at the outset of your uh, justification. He he actually strives with you the whole time to keep you and to preserve you. And you can pray to him and talk to him and, and engage with him. It's kind of a cool thing. And I think we see that uh, here in the text of Daniel. Daniel uh, shows us that God is someone who listens and who is, let's say, in an abiding, continuous relationship with his people. So with that being said, uh, before we get into all the, the beautiful parts of the text, there are, let's say, two technical details that we need to take care of. One is the chronology of the book of Daniel. Now, you might have noticed... Daniel is not written in a linear order. Um, Daniel 1, 2, and 3 gave us that notion that it's written in a linear order. Uh, then you get to Daniel chapter 5, and you realize that we've jumped way forward in time. Then you get to Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, you realize you've jumped backwards in time. Then Daniel 7 and 8, you jump forward in time again, but not quite so far as chapter 5. Uh, and now, in Daniel chapter 9, we've jumped ahead of chapter 5, um, and we are well past the visions of chapter 7 and 8 chronologically. So if you were to try to line all those things up, Daniel chapter 9 is the furthest into the chronology that we've been in the book of Daniel, uh, and it's essentially what happens right after Daniel chapter 5. So Daniel chapter 5, there's a handwriting on the wall. Daniel tells Belshazzar his time is up, and Belshazzar uh, is killed that night by the Medes. And in the first year, the Darius, who's the son of Ahasuerus, he's the Mede that kills and takes over the empire, um, he's now the one ruling. This is when Daniel chapter 9 happens. Now, there is all kinds of uh, importance to that chronology as it unfolds, but that kind of kicks us right into the second detail, 
Uh, one of the things I've mentioned about the book of Daniel is if you're a believer, uh, the book of Daniel offers you probably the best proof that prophecy and future prediction in scripture is a real thing because the dating of Daniel and its acceptance into the canon tells us that it was written well before the events predicted happen in the text. One of the problems though, uh, and this is not a big problem, but one of the things scholars will point out is that there's no record anywhere in the historical timing of the Babylonian Empire or the Mede Empire or anything like that of a person named Darius, the, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede. They would say, this person doesn't exist, thus Daniel is lying, it's a fabrication, the whole thing's a sham, and you can abandon your Bible. Um, that's a, a huge jump in assumptions. And even if we don't know of a person named Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, uh, a Mede, or Darius the Mede, as he's called elsewhere, um, even if we have no historical or archaeological record of such a person, that doesn't mean he didn't exist or he's not out there. For instance, I'll give you a great example of this. Uh, there was a long time where biblical scholars were arguing that the King, king David and, and Israel and the Davidic dynasty just wasn't a thing. Israel made up all those stories. They're not real. Why? We've never dug anything up that talks about David outside of the text preserved in the Bible. So clearly, the King David dynasty is a sham. Well, that was until they kept digging and they dug up something that talked about King David and they said, oh, I guess he did exist. My point is, if you just let time unfold, we may or may not find something about a guy named Darius. And at that point in time, all the critical scholars will do what they have to usually do in these kinds of instances, which is say, oh yes, the historical accuracy of the Bible is once again proven to be valid. So even as Christians, if we say, well, we don't have record outside of the Bible yet to confirm it, we would just say, well, that's in the category of uncertainty, but it certainly doesn't threaten our doctrine of inerrancy. So with all those two technical details out of the way, let's get now back into, let's say, the meat and bones of the text. And that is uh, a prayer from Daniel, which is inspired from meditating on uh, another prophet's message to the people in exile. So Daniel has a contemporary, uh, and his contemporary is uh, Jeremiah. And Daniel is reading from Jeremiah's letter, and he's, uh, he's meditating on it, he's chewing over it, and he, in this, this meditation, this Bible study, if you like, spurs him into this amazing prayer that we have recorded here. In Daniel chapter 2, uh, sorry, Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, you see that uh, he's reading. Uh, it says, he perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel's reading somewhere in Jeremiah where it talks about Israel only being brought out in exile for 70 years and then them being brought home. And one of the things that is interesting in the book of Jeremiah is it also predicts that Babylon will only rule for 70 years. Now, you might not know that text or you might know the text but not know that it's this text. So I would invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29 and we're gonna read that prediction. Jeremiah 29. And this is a text that you may be very familiar with because it's a, it's a popular text in our culture. It's Jeremiah 29, and it's verse, uh, well, it, it's a whole letter, um, but I'm just going to read uh, a handful of pieces from it. Uh, really going to be starting in verse 10, but the context is Jeremiah has written a letter to the exiles who are out in Babylon, and he says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and you will find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So Jeremiah 29, 11 is a text you're no doubt familiar with because, well, this is a, uh, a text that will be embroidered on pillows and, um, and people use this text a lot. And it's a, it's a wonderful text to remind us of God's, God's faithfulness to his people. But the context of Jeremiah 29 is these are, this is a message to exiles who have been essentially told for 70 years life is going to suck. But at the end of 70 years, God's going to return his people. So Daniel's reading Jeremiah's prophecy, this prophecy in particular, He's putting together pieces, right? Well, Babylon just fell. So this is the end of the 70 years. So what's going to happen next in the prophecy? Well, Israel's going to be brought back into the promised land. Israel's going to be brought back to their city. They're going to be able to build it back up. And that's all that's told to us in verse 12 through verse uh, 14 that I read there in Jeremiah 29. God says that he's going to call or that, that Daniel can come and pray to him, that he will hear that when they seek him, they will find him, right? There's this beautiful promises of like invitation to the people of God. And so it's out of this Bible study and meditation that Daniel launches into his prayer. And you'll notice that, well, it, it, it produces quite a fruitful and theologically rich prayer. And just to point out a couple of those pieces, you know, we read it, so I'm not going to reread the whole thing. But just to point out a couple of the pieces of the theology that comes out of this prayer, right? Daniel in verse 3, Daniel chapter 9, verse 3 he turned his face to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and please for mercy with fasting and with sackcloth and with ashes. And it says, for I prayed to the Lord my God and I made confession. So Daniel uh, does what is told to him in the, in the text, namely that they need to repent of their apostasy. They need to seek God. And when they seek him and confess and repent with a full heart, he will be found by them. So Daniel starts with confession. And he, he confesses for quite a long time. He confesses of Israel's apostasy, he confesses uh, God's faithfulness to them, even despite their unfaithfulness to him. Uh, they say, in, for example, he says in verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. And, he's saying, and so essentially he's saying, what you did was fitting. You punished us, you, ca you cast us out of the, the, the land, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. All of them were cast out of the land. And he says, verse 8 again, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers. Right? He's saying the Lord is just in, in his punishment of the people. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. Now, this is a text. I'm not going to turn there, but Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, if you want to write those down or, or keep those in the back of your mind, are the blessings and the curses laid out in the law. And these blessings or curses are, well, if you strive with me, I will bless you. I will give you land, fruit, abundance, and, and prosperity. And if you strive away from me, I will curse you. I will cut you off from the land. I will uh, pour wrath on you. I will give you disease. I will put you to open shame, and I will cut you off from the land. And, and Daniel's simply saying, well, God did what he promised us he would do. And that was that what he told us he would do when he says we are disobedient, he did. And so all of his judgments are true and just and right. And so, okay, well, Daniel's just confessed that they don't deserve it, but that nevertheless he's confessing the sin. So what's his request going to be for God to let's say, put them back together, right? This is what, this is motivation to pray, right? I want to be back in the land, back, back with my people. 
And you'll notice that his appeal to God is not based on Israel or Daniel or anyone else. The appeal is on the basis of God's character. And you'll notice this uh, a couple of places in the text, but um, verse 14, he affirms, Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity, and he has brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he's done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now check this out in verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and you have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and let your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. And why should God do that? Because of the sins of your people and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people, they have become a byword among all those around us. So Daniel's motivation to pray to God and ask him to restore them to the land is, well, because God's people are a manifestation, a representation of God in the land, and their shame is God's shame in the land. So when the people are in the land, they're cut off from the land, what does everyone else conclude? Well, the gods of the Babylonians are stronger than the gods of the Israelites. And that would include Yahweh. Right? So Yahweh is being put to shame by his people being cut off from the land. So what does Daniel say? Well, he says, because we're a byword in the land, what does that mean? That means you're a byword, you have a bad reputation in the land, restore us back to the land. Verse 17, now therefore, O Lord our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And check this out, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. Well, what benefit does God get out of making his face shine upon the sanctuary? Well, his people go back to the sanctuary, his people are blessed, and then everyone says, look at the God of the Israelites who is faithful and has striven with them and who is indeed mighty to save, right? It is a direct reflection on God's power. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear, open your eyes, see our desolations, and see the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. So he's appealing to God's character, he's appealing to God's mercy, he's appealing to God's faithfulness and saving them from the land of Egypt, right? This is, it's very much God's reputation at stake in his own people. And, and God has made it so, right? This is the reason he's preserved them before and why he's called them to be a people unto himself. And so you see a lot of beauty in, the, in this prayer, but you see also, let's say, a lot of commonality between this prayer and, and other prayers in scripture. Prayer is us asking of God things he's already promised to us. And in Daniel chapter 9, you see that. God promised the people at the end of 70 years, Babylon's going to be cut off, and the people will be restored to the land. So what does Daniel do? Well, he just sits on his back and says, well, I'll just wait for all that to unfold. No. It motivates him to pray. It motivates him to seek the face of God and seek God's favor and seek God's mercy. It motivates him to confession because he has confidence that when he does these things, that God will hear him and God will answer his prayer. So his, his prayer is, let's say, fueled by a prophecy that will come to pass, right? Because God's word is sure, and it will come to pass. But that doesn't mean that when he sees the prophecy unfolding that he stops praying. It actually means he seeks God all the more. He prays to him. He, he seeks him. And when he seeks God, he, he, he first confesses the sin of Israel, essentially affirming God's justice in all of his actions. And then he takes the conclusion out further, and he says, well, God... Remember that your reputation is blended with your people's reputation. Uh, in, in Isaiah, God will say that he is afflicted in the afflictions of the Israelites. Why? Because, well, his name is dragged through the mud because he's their God and his people are not faithful to him. It's, it's an embarrassment to God. That's why he cuts them off from the land. 
But when he restores them to the land, it tells everyone that the God of the Israelites is actually powerful. God of the Babylonians is out of power, right? At the, at, they've just been overthrown by the Medes. But the God of the Israelites has preserved his people, and now he's going to restore them to the land. This is going to have a powerful testimony about the strength of Yahweh. So God is going to, let's say, reclaim his glory in the land. His promise is to uh, restore his people, and his glory is, let's say, linked to that fulfillment. And then, uh, and not only his glory, but also his mercy, just like, just character aspects of who God is. He appeals to God's mercy. And, and he's not appealing to their righteousness because he says several times, it belongs to us open shame. It belongs to us to be cut off. All your punishments were just, but Lord, remember your glory, your name, and have mercy on your people. Now, what does this uh, teach us about prayer? Well, it teaches us a bunch of things, and more so than just, let's say, the theology of prayer, that we pray God's promises back to him. But it, it also teaches us that, you know, when we seek God, there's a certain right posture in seeking him. Uh, namely, uh, there's, no, there's no defensiveness, right? There's no, uh, Daniel wasn't part of the Israelite group that was responsible for me cut off from the land, right? He was a, he's a, he was a youth when, when they were cut off from the land. So, it wasn't for Daniel's sin specifically that the Israelites are cut off. But Daniel sees himself as part of a larger body of people because he's part of the covenant family of God. And, and I think in the West, this is something we can really learn, is that, well, we are part of a larger group of people, the covenant church. We're not just individual Christians kind of all in our silos out in the world. But when churches act in a certain way or behave in a certain way or do certain things, uh, well, other Christians, let's say, either bear the respect that is earned by that or the reproach that is merited by that, whether we want to or not. And Daniel sees himself, even though he wasn't, let's say, the single individual sinner in, in this instance, but he sees himself as being part of this corporate body, Israel, which is covenantally linked to God. And he sees that, well, this is just as much his people. And so he's going to engage on their behalf in confession and, and a prayer to God and an appeal to his mercy. I think we can learn a lot about that. When we pray for the corporate church, which we should be doing, uh, we can engage with God in a way that doesn't see it as the church out there, but this is our, these are our people. These are, this is our covenant family. And insofar as they sin and fall short of the glory of God and, and don't represent God well, we can pray for God to forgive us and for him to have mercy on us and for him to stir us up to faithfulness and obedience. And, and, and that's because, you know, you've, you've probably had this experience. Well, you're a Christian and you're talking to someone who's not a Christian. And they say, I'm not a Christian because I had a bad experience with this other church person over here. Well, it's because you're part of a corporate identity of people, whether you like it or not. And they reflect on you, either good or bad. And you reflect on them, either good or bad. And, you know, th there's all kinds of conflating factors with that. But all I'm saying is we have to see ourselves as part of a bigger group than just, let's say, Rua Church or just you individually, a Christian. So we pray for that larger body. The other thing you see in the text is all of his appeals are rooted and grounded in God's character. He, when he prays to God, he doesn't pray assuming anything about God. He knows who he's talking to. He knows about his faithfulness. And all of that spurs him into prayer because, well, you can confess a whole lot of stuff if you know that your appeal and your ask is not based on how good you are, right? You can confess every sin you've ever committed. You can confess all kinds of stuff because you're not about to make the appeal on the basis of how good you've been doing or not good you've been doing, right? You're not trying to get away with anything. You're going to make the appeal on God's mercy. So God's mercy is actually elevated and, let's say, heightened by the fact that Daniel confesses a whole host of sins. And that, that's true when we engage God in prayer as well. When, 
When we go before God and we don't, we don't say, well, because I've been good this time, will you do the, no. We go before God and we, we say, we're sinners, we're in need of salvation, uh, would you be mighty to save? And when you go before God like that, you're making all kinds of appeal to his grace, all kinds of appeals to his mercy, and that is a, a backbone and a foundation for the Christian prayer life as well. But my point is, that's not a New Testament truth. This is, this is true for Daniel, right? He's, he's appealing to God's mercy as the backbone for salvation. This tells us a lot about the Jewish religious system. It's not a legalistic, works-based righteousness system. It's a system based on mercy and an appeal to a covenant God. And this is what we see in the text. Daniel understands God to relate to his people, actually in the same way that a Christian would understand God to relate to his people, uh, as a God who shows mercy and faithfulness. And, well, this is how we pray to God. We, we pray for his mercy and his faithfulness in spite of all of our shortcomings of the law. And this should give us all kinds of problems. Like Paul says, well, can we conclude then, if, if God's mercy is so great and so vast, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? No, that's not to understand grace well. But if you're not talking about God's grace in such a way as someone would come to that potential conclusion, you're undervaluing God's grace and you're sneaking a little bit of legalism in there. Because God's grace is so vast and expansive that someone might be tempted to conclude, well, well, if his grace is elevated by my sin and his ability to forgive my sin, maybe I should just keep on sinning. That's not quite as far as you want to go. But the point is, that's kind of always lurking because of how good God's grace is. Look at all the stuff Daniel confesses, and he just kind of immediately punts to God's mercy. And I think that gives us a great model. Like, look at how much of the prayer is, let's say, by just volume, is confession of past sin, and then an appeal to God to restore the people. There's no bartering. There's no, you know, based on my righteousness. So we learn from Daniel how to pray. We learn from Daniel how to engage with God. And then we might ask, let's say, the final level of question, which is, okay, why would Daniel write this to exiles who are, who are lost in, in Babylon? Why does he record this prayer? Daniel records this prayer so that the exiles might have confidence when they go before God that even while they're cut off from the land, even while they're uh, not in Jerusalem, they don't have priests, they don't have sacrifices, God still listens to his people. There's a certain comfort in that. You know, you're not in the land, you're not back in at home, but God listens to his people. This is a great blessing for God's people to know, that he listens to them even, even in the midst of his wrath towards them, right? Imagine uh, if we really believe that, and in the midst of our sin, we became aware of the fact that we are in fact sinning, and we need to talk to God, but we think, well, maybe I need to get myself back together before I go talk to God. And here Daniel's modeling for us, even before you're back in the land, even before you're restored, even before you've done everything right, just seek the Lord's face. Because it's his, his character, his righteousness that is the, the basis for all of our prayer to him. And so here you have a wonderful model, I think, in scripture of prayer. It's recorded for us here, and I decided we're not going to try to take all of chapter 9. There's so much more in chapter 9, but just these verses so we can just chew on the beauty of prayer as modeled for us by this Old Testament saint. Uh, with that, let me close this in a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll go into our discussion. Father God, uh, you are mighty to save. You are a God who is faithful to your word. You are faithful to your people. Your promises are sure. They are confirmed. They are steadfast, and they are unfailing. Lord, we know that despite our wickedness, despite our rebellion, despite the rebellion of the Israelites, you are a God who is steadfast and immovable and you hold your arms wide open for your people to come back and turn and repent and believe on your name. We thank you that that's your disposition and that you have not changed and that you are the same God 
even today, who, who longs to be in relationship with his people. Lord, we pray insofar as we are uh, relying on our own righteousness, that you would reveal to us our sin and cause us to seek you and seek your face on the basis of your glory and your name and your mercy and not based on anything we have done. And we pray that as far as our sin is concerned, that you would reveal it to us so we might be able to confess and to confess often so that, so that we might be able to know just how powerful you are to save. Because as far as our sins are concerned and as far as your mercy is concerned, there is just no competition. We thank you for that truth. We pray this all in your name. Amen.